You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Brave New Radio, Radio Bravo. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your Dr. Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. Yes, Marconi Emeritus, the only emeritus in the Americas, and we are proud to be here today. Show number 10,563 billion, and we're excited. Uh, with us today is our student co-host, Gwen Stevenson. Gwen, say hola. Hola. <laughs> Great to have you here, Gwen. And Great Gwen to be Fox. here. Gwen's a pop student here taking a class. It's a Nashville-based class in which we couldn't go to Nashville this year because of COVID, so Nashville came to us. And uh, Gwen, who is your guest today? So today we have the esteemed Richard Goderer. That's and right. he, he is the co-founder and chief creative officer of The Orchard, um, he's, which is the largest distributor of independent music and film in the world. Richard has been a creative entrepreneur throughout his professional life. He began as a Brill Building songwriter and producer in the 1960s, and he wrote classics such as the number one hit, My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels. He was also part of a pop group called The Strange Loves, and he wrote the song, I Want Candy. In 1966, he co-founded Sire Records and also began introducing underground progressive bands with this record label, including The Ramones, The Talking Heads, Depeche Mode, and Madonna. He's also a multi-platform producer who has worked with many artists, including Blonding, The Go-Go's, David Bowie, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Richard also founded Instant Records in the 70s and revived the company later in 2013 with his partner, Scott Cohen. He also started The Orchard with Scott in 1997, where he is currently working. Thank you so much, Richard, for being here. It's exciting to have you. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. All right. So why don't we start at the very beginning? And I wanted to go over some of your educational background. So I saw in my research that you went to Adelphi University and um, you studied history there. And then after you graduated from there, you went to law school briefly and then you mm -hmm. jumped ship to the music industry. So what changed and made you want to pursue a music industry career? Uh, <laughs> I was always writing songs from when I was a kid. So, um, in fact, you mentioned Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, when I used to hear Jerry Lee on the radio, uh, on the Alan Freed show in, um, in New York, um, I was more of a fan of Jerry Lee than I was Elvis Presley. Those were the two big ones in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I was a piano player. And uh, I wrote a song based on my liking great balls of fire and it was called I'm on fire and um, um, eventually after my boyfriend's back was a success he was signing to the same label smash records and we were at a convention and uh, they were looking for songs so I said oh I got one and I was 15 at the time I wrote it but but this was like um, we were 23 then so so it was six, seven years later, I met Jerry Lee, played him the song, and he recorded it. And it became a minor hit, but was used in the film. So cool. So it was pretty interesting. That's awesome. So, um, so I had always written songs and, and um, dabbled at bits and pieces of the music business. And then um, when I was going to law school, 
I also was involved with a publishing company and would uh, go down to the area known as the Burl Building, mm -hmm. which is uh, Manhattan from 49th to the mid-50s um, at the time. And it was the equivalent of Tin Pan Alley, independent record companies, uh, independent publishers. And you could walk from room to room uh, in the building and play songs for somebody who would then try to get an artist to record it. And I started doing that and little by little started cutting classes, <laughs> not showing up at Brooklyn Law School. Uh, my parents finally got a letter saying, you know, your son hasn't been coming to class. Well, where I was going was coming down from the Bronx, instead of going all the way to Brooklyn, I would get off the D train uh, at 7th Avenue and hang out in that scene in the Borough Building. Nice. And uh, met a couple of other guys and just started uh, writing songs. And then I dropped out of law school and just did it full time. Nice. Well, right. I yeah. feel like the transition well, period is important. <laughs> you know, uh, my mother never forgave me. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's meant to be a lawyer, you know. That's you funny. Know, you have to follow a profession, and certainly songwriting wasn't a profession. Well. It, it <laughs> might be, but. Well, so how I long know. were you I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just uh, saying from a mother's point of view, it was different. Right. <laughs> how long were you at the Brill Building writing songs? Well, um, the Brill Building is a building on 49th Street and Broadway. Mm -hmm. And the other, the other significant building in that segment was a place called 1650 Broadway, which actually was not on Broadway. It was in the middle of a block on 51st Street. So again, you see that area. Um, I would say started work writing within that scene seriously in 1961, 62, um, and uh, pretty much it was over by 66. So okay. five years. And that's yeah. when you started Sire Records, right? In so what made you want to... 66, 67, yeah. Yeah. What made you want oh, to... Nothing. We just started... Um, we started off... Um, my writing partners, Bob Feldman and Jerry Goldstein, we learned to be producers because we had to make demos of the songs we were writing for people. And um, we became so good at making the demos that everyone liked the style of it. So we decided to produce things ourselves. And one of the early productions turned out to be The Angels, my boyfriend's back. So we, we learned well. And from there, we became active producers, continued producing girl groups, uh, a number of other things, um, uh, became artists ourselves as the Strange Loves, um, mm -hmm. and recorded and wrote I Want Candy, uh, pretended to be Australian, because um, people at that point were starting to record our songs, but they were English groups, and the English groups were coming over, and then and started writing their own songs. So, That's interesting. So you said you pretended to be Australian. We did. We did because um, people were interested in that time in British groups. That's interesting. And we couldn't pass for British, I thought, but you had to be Australian, Canadian, you know, uh, perhaps even South African. But that was not that was not in favor, you know. <clears throat> South Africa was uh, was looked looked down upon as uh, because of apartheid, and uh, so it became Australian. And, That's really interesting, um, you know, because like you know today it's it's like America is the place where all the hits come from, you know, and not really. Oh, really? No, not really. We we influence. Um, I'll just go from the orchard, America. I would, I would think well over the majority of our successes come from outside the United States. You can consider Latin America. Since we haven't oh, made Puerto good. Rico a state, I would consider that <laughs> Bad Bunny is, uh, is a, a Puerto Rican artist. Uh, but look at BTS. 
BTS True. is Korean. Uh, and that's the interesting point, is they're singing in Korean. Mm -hmm. Some attachment to American artists, yes. But, but they are South Korean. And um, what I found, we're skipping around, but, um, uh, but today what you're living is in, in a to totally global world. It doesn't really matter when you release a piece of music today. It's released everywhere. So America isn't the center of, well, I won't get too political, but America isn't the center of anything anymore. That we live in a, we live in a wide open world, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And um, music, I didn't learn music by listening to uh, white songwriters in the past. Of course, Irving Berlin was meaningful, but I, I learned to write songs by listening to uh, Muddy Wallace, Alan Wolf, uh, Jimmy Reed. Uh, and where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis got it from? Mm -hmm. Where did Elvis get it from? And, you know, it's that mixture of Southern culture which is both black and white. Right. So you have, you have immigrant culture mixing with, uh, mixing with the uh, southern, um, southern black culture, and you, you have an emergence of a form of truly American music. And even I Want Candy, isn't that a big Bo Diddley uh, inspiration with the sort of Bo Diddley beat in the background? I want, well, I Want Candy is a very big Bo Diddley inspiration uh as a kid i love that beat and um it the song is built around that specifically that beat remember bose was on a guitar so you had that musical quality to it um um the strange loves version and, and then the future versions were built around the rhythmical aspect of it pounding on on drums so you had a bit of the, um, um, I imagine, more primitive um, 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 roots African roots African sound um, mixed with what we remembered of Bo Diddley, sure. So it's very, very influenced uh, by it. For sure. Um, I also wanted to talk about, like, You've been a part of so many different startups over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I was all, I was wondering what it's like to be a part of so many of of budding um, companies, and what it's like to watch them become so successful. Yeah, um, I always like the early stages of things. Um, it's without again. Uh, You'll find out, but um, uh, it's like falling in love. I mean, life gets great with your mate, but the early stages are things you never forget. That that initial uh, rush and excitement. So when we started writing songs, Bob, Jerry, and I, Bob Fell and Jerry Goldstein and I, those initial phases of writing those songs, seeing them become successful um, it's very important because you make a living from it and then it gives you something to aspire to. But at the same time, the uh, actual doing of the writing of the songs is where the energy lives. And if you can take that, connect with the right people and actually do it well, um, then you could succeed as a songwriter. Um, as I went on and left, we became producers. We were successful, um, not only with uh, I Want Candy and the Strangers, but the McCoys, Hang On Sloopy. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, I went on and became friendly with Seymour, who was a promotion man at the time, and we started Sire Records. Now, that's a beginning again. And... A lot of the things in the beginning were really amazing because I learned a lot more. I went to Europe for the first time. Um, when you start something, it doesn't automatically become successful. You have to be part of a scene where something has to be going on that 
significantly influences it. In the case of Sire, we started an independent label. For the most part, we would have to be lucky to get songs and records to compete. But we went to Europe, and right at that time we went to Europe, America and radio was changing. Everything up until that time was AM, top mm -hmm. four. Right at the time we started Sire, records that is, um, all of a sudden people were interested in albums because the FM signal came in. And FM allowed you to have full spectrum stereo. So as people became interested in hearing things from both sides of their ears instead of right down the middle, we were able to go to Europe and talk to the export divisions of the companies there and acquire what we thought were great albums that the American affiliates of those companies didn't want to release. And we were given those to release. And among those were um, this band Climax Blues Band, uh, the original Renaissance, a lot of psychedelic things because psychedelic stoner music was happening. And here we are, we started a company and all of a sudden we have this music. So we had a distribution deal with London Records and we released the records through them. And FM radio was looking for material because American companies weren't making that many. And there we were. So Sire Records became sort of a fixture on FM radio for progressive music. This is prior to uh, all the other Madonnas and Talking Heads and stuff. And, but that's how things get started. And those early stages are really great. Um, short story, a lot of what we did was we would take trips to Europe uh, we met people and we would bring with us because I used to use that as a promotion effort back in the FGG days, cheesecakes. There, New York has an abundance or several really great cheesecake makers and you can't get them anywhere else in the world. They're basically Jewish cheesecakes. And we would take a dozen cheesecakes, go to England, go visit the major record companies, export divisions, and say, we have a gift for you. Next time we came back, they would ask for the cheesecakes. And we would say, you got any records for us? And that was the beginnings. So if you're asking me how it's done, it's just exciting, you know, when you can come up with unique ways of starting something, not necessarily with money, but with other... With innovation. Other so innovation. So that's innovation. So um, on one of the trips, we came across, uh, I was in, um, it was in Holland, in the Netherlands. We came across somebody who made a record and wanted us to put it out. And it was a group called Focus. Focus had on Sire a number one record called Hocus Pocus. And um, we also in our travels, brought into, um, brought into a small British um, record company that supported blues artists. They were called, it was called Blue Horizon Records. And it was mostly old, um, old blues artists that they were supporting. But then they started making records and made early, early Fleetwood Mac, Chicken Shack, combination of Chicken Shack and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac eventually became the Fleetwood Mac that we know that sold tens or hundreds of millions of records mm -hmm. um, around the world. So again, Sire grew. Um, and then after a while, I decided I wanted to go back to producing. And I left Sire right after we signed the Ramones and started hanging around CBGB's myself and started a production company. And in the course of 
starting the production company, which is called Instant Records, um, was able from CBGBs, was able to sign Blondie, um, Seymour stayed at Sire, um, um, signed Talking Heads, and had the Ramones. And um, I, I continued on with Blondie, uh, Robert Gordon, and uh, Richard Hell. Uh, Richard Allen of War Dogs, my generation. And that just continued <laughs> to grow. And as I kept going over the decades, continued making records, uh, produced the Go-Go's, uh, Joan Armour Training, um, Dr. Feelgood. Um, one of our songs, Sorrow, was recorded by David Bowie. Uh, one of the old FGG songs. So the lesson for people going to um, I, I would tell you, um, going to study any form of uh, educational, musical, like you're doing, wanting to be part of the music business, songwriting is the most significant, most continually rewarding aspect of the whole thing. Those songs live today, are successful, and uh, probably earn more money today than they did when they were initially successful. So writing a great song that crosses generations, not that they're great, <coughs> but for some reason, um, different aspects of different generations since their creation 50 years plus years ago um, have allowed them to sustain. Um, you know, so th that's important. The song is, to, is the most important thing in the business. All the rest of it you can throw in the garbage. There you would be nothing if there wasn't song. If you don't have a great song, nothing's going to happen for you. Right. And you can have as many likes as you want, and you can live in the business the way it is now, but you need a great song. So so after that, yeah, here you go. Uh, uh, a brief, well, you can't see it. Um, a Brief History of Time. I see that. Um, I started reading Stephen Hawking. I started reading it again. Uh, when we entered uh, isolation almost 90 days ago, but it, I lasted like uh, a few minutes. Then I went back to reading some other crap. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so where were, where we? were we? Okay, um, so, so here we go again. Yeah, so so I meet Scott. Mm -hmm. We have this um, small label, um, Soul Free Records. We're putting out records, and nothing's happening with it. But at that same moment, if you go back to the same thing, think about Brill Building, Changeover, British bands, global music coming in, changes, Sire Records. The growth begins when we're able to adapt to the change in technology, okay, which is the signal from AM to FM. Okay. So we have this, this label, we have no money to run the label, so we have a series of, of interns. In those days, you, you wouldn't be required as we are now to pay interns. Well, but, they're still not required. I'm not being paid for my internship right now. <laughs> yes, but you're going to school. Your True. payment is education. Um, at the Orchard slash Sony now, anybody who comes has to get minimum wage um at least yeah so anyway but that the intern wasn't the point the point was it well it is the intern's point they there was we we were trying to uh interest people in our music and at that same time what appears the internet well there was no broadband but the internet made it possible for people to communicate. And on the internet, when we looked, and it was like, what, 28, 14, 28, it was so slow. Yeah. And we would have our interns go on whatever site we saw where someone was talking about an, a particular artist. Well, if we had a heavy metal artist, we would say, have you heard, Scrub? Have you heard this? And they would communicate. 
In the course of that, we discovered that some wise people had started an internet online music store. The music store, there were two of them. One was Music Boulevard. I mean, you should look these things up if you don't know about them. It, sure. It's amazing. And the other was called uh, CD Now. Okay. Mm-hmm. CD Now. And both of those um, had vast catalogs of music they were selling. So I got in touch with, um, I got in touch with uh, CD Now and said, well, we're an independent record company. You know, we... We want to we want to have our music in your store, and they said absolutely not. And and as a novice, not knowing what I was doing, I asked why. Mm-hmm. And the answer was they weren't really a store; they were what we know now as virtual fronts. There was a one-stop distributor that was the back end for those stores and initially for Amazon, uh, when Amazon started selling music initially. So he asked the question, well, how is it done? And they were nice enough to tell us. So called up the one-stop distributor, who was an old-school distributor in Sacramento, and again, looked them up. They were called Valley, V-A-L-L-E-Y. A guy named Barney Cohn owned it. He started in a record store and then became the largest one-stop distributor. By What I mean by one-stop is he wasn't um, supplying in a particular regional area. He supplied on behalf of all the major record companies to rack jobbers, to stores all across the country. And um, they, they could have had half a million titles, a quarter million titles, in their in their warehouse, so we fly out to uh, Sacramento and go to see them. And Scott and I say, "Geez, this is amazing! Why don't we start a company?" And we decided to call it the Orchard. <laughs> and we didn't have one. We didn't have one artist, right? So you're talking about how you build the business. Mm-hmm. And went out there and said to them, "You know, we could bring you." Got a meeting. Why they gave us a meeting, I have no idea. I found out later. Um, wh- and we could bring you all the independent music in the world because you don't have independent music, and we can get it for you. Well, still not knowing how. Um, so sit around for an hour or so, talking to them, giving them the pitch. Not interested. What they wanted to talk to me about was the Angels, Blondie, the Go-Go's, Richard Hell, all that. So I start thinking, really? So you begin to see as you build things through your career, through life, that different things that I thought were long past for me. I, I wasn't interested in that stuff anymore. I was interested in what I was going to do next. But to them, that was important. So I talked to them about it, and we all laughed and stuff. And then they said, we trust you. You're one of us. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, what does that mean? Uh, and they at first gave us all their consignment business, and then they allowed us. Oh, no. Come on. That's a punchline. <laughs> I think where I left off, I was talking about. You were talking you know, about Valley. What's that? Yeah, Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, we um, we became the supplier to them uh, of independent music, and artists signed up with us, and we were able to get independent music into the online systems. The thing that we did, and here's where 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 some sort of innovation comes in is that we put a clause in the agreement that you also give us the right to uh, distribute, store, and deliver your music digitally. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, everybody said, sure. And there was nowhere to deliver it digitally. Uh, Scott and I thought about it. We said, well, what's next? Oh, sooner or later, you're going to have 
faster speed internet. When you do, people will able to do what? They'll be able to take a file or a sound and download it. Mm -hmm. And um, then came downloading. That was the miracle of the ages. <laughs> and then nobody downloads music anymore. Or some people do. I, I shouldn't say that. Um, it's like the people that still buy vinyl. Or, yeah. or maybe not that. That's a collector's <laughs> item, vinyl. Um, vinyl and CDs. So you have, um, you have this massive change. And then we're rolling along with about 150, uh, 200,000 artist songs. And iTunes opens. And um, all of a sudden, we have... Um, we have um, the, the largest number of um, um, titles to deliver to iTunes. And then we begin investing on um, um, acquiring labels and labels from all over the world. That was always the point of the orchard, that music is, a, is universal. It doesn't have to be in English. It doesn't have to be... You know, if we want to sell in our country, we do it a certain way. But basically, things sell globally now. It, 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 it almost doesn't matter where it comes from. And everybody can do the same thing now. We all can create music. We all can go on Zoom calls. We all can speak to as each other. As long as the internet works. <laughs> you know, now all we have to do is figure a way to get along, you know, and, uh, and we should be okay. And hopefully... Um, this will help us. Yeah. I actually had Richard, a you, uh, you brought up uh, physical and vinyl. Um, when I talk to people in major labels, they still say that physical CDs, for example, are still 30 to 40% of the business. On the indie side where you are, are you seeing that or it's much lower because just the type of music that you're working? And is that... And you meant the international, so is it different domestically? And yeah, I had that I question. In different countries, I understand Germany was a physical, you know, physical sold. I think it's different from country to country. Um, I think we see the same sort of um, breakdown as the majors. Um, uh, um, we, um, in, um, I guess, God, how long ago is it now? 2009. I think we acquired um, TVT records. And um, along with that came a whole physical distribution unit. And we learned about re-engaging in the physical market then, and then continued. And physical is still a significant part of what we do. I mean, obviously, primarily it's digital. But um, yeah, we have a, we have a, a great division that um, <laughs> delivers to wherever you can deliver physical music these days. But, but it's um, um, BTS, for example, is very much physical sales. Uh, a, a lot of that is, um, I think, prompted by the um, uh, their audience that wants to own, feel that they have um, a, a significant part of them. That, that are engaged and are and feel like part of them. In the digital world, you're not part. You don't feel like you're part of the artist. You you don't have anything of theirs. What you do is you hear it, but do you pick it up and say, "Oh, it's not a tangible album. thing they can hold." It's something that makes you feel that you are part of that relationship. Yeah, and I think that's very important. So it is important, and yeah, with major labels, more so, you know, they develop their catalogs differently. But as far as the orchard goes, yeah, uh, we have a very active physical department. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, I had another question about how um, you've been involved in wine. Yeah, it's wine mm -hmm. time. Um, so many different, like, startup companies. Have you ever had to abandon a project or an opportunity to pursue another or to work on another? Uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think at, at the orchard as we grew. Um, well, we went public at one point. Right. And, I saw that. And then went and private we, again. Uh, 
we abandoned that because it happened in 2008 and ah. the whole stock market crashed. Yikes. Uh, so nobody was buying shares in a stock that was basically controlled, you know, by, by a handful of individuals. Um, so that didn't, that didn't work out. So that plan was abandoned, but uh, when we came back out of being public, we invested in technology and expanding our uh, tech, uh, technolo techno technological reach. And, um, and that became very important to us. We uh, continue to expand globally. We now have Orchard offices in, um, <clears throat> I think it's as many as 40 different, um, 40 different countries. And they're straight Orchard offices. They're not tied into the Sony offices. Uh, and Sony, of course, has offices wherever um, uh, in all those places. So um, I'm just trying to think, what would be? Ah, the movie business. We were in film. And that was a good logical step. And we were doing fairly well, but it's a very difficult business and very different. So um, um, we, um, we left the film business to focus more on developing additional technology and um, our distribution facilities in the digital area. Gotcha. <clears throat> you mentioned offices. Uh, you have 50 offices around the world and not necessarily in the same places as Sony. Um, and Sony bought the orchard. Sony How acquired the orchard in 2015. Okay, so five years ago. Um, were those offices already there or are, is just your business is different enough from Sony's that you don't need to be where Sony is? No. Uh, <clears throat> A business is, is different, and Sony, um, being the great company that it is, um, led by the person in the United States who's the head of music, uh, Rob Stringer, I think has a great understanding that what we do is, is almost is, is a significant part of what uh, the real... Um, emerging music businesses today. It's artist driven. It's driven by people that want to represent themselves in some way that, that, that feel they can do a lot of this, but need um, an organization like the Orchard that, um, that offers the, the things that an individual might not be able to do themselves. Back-end services, uh, possible marketing, um, it, it, allows, it allows for a world of independence. And the Orchard's really good at that. And with offices, say, in 40 different places, not necessarily attached um, to the Sony offices, it allows us to operate in a free and more open way. Um, a major label or any major business has a structure that that has to be maintained. There's so many people. Um, there's so much more involved. When I say we have offices, um, like uh, we've just opened up in the Netherlands, <clears throat> and in Amsterdam we maybe have three people. In Paris we started with one person. We're probably five or six. Um, in Hamburg, which functions as the control center for continental Europe, we have 20 people, you know, and um, as far as I believe, even though Sony is a, is, is, emanates from Japan, we opened up a separate um, orchard office in Tokyo uh, for people that just want to be part of the feeling of independence. And we're able to provide those same services but we're able to do it with a different understanding. And I think, um, I think that serves the industry really well. Yeah. Does that make cool. sense? I think yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very clear that the orchard has been able to adapt um, to the changing tides in the industry. Um, 
I noticed in my research before our interview that um, it rolled out, or the Orchard rolled out a new app for artists called Orchard Go. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about that. I could if I knew a lot about it. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I did see that it helps my, artists. My, my guess is it, it gives you the ability to gather specific information in detail where and how the music you release is doing, and then the ability to post um, and do things uh, remotely to um, stimulate uh, more activity. That's pretty much what the article I read said. <laughs> and I, think I didn't know that <laughs> because I didn't read it, but it was logical. And that's the thing about the orchard. We basically um, continue to do logical, um, logical things that make sense uh, for the artist or label. We started an artist services division that deals with specific artists that come in that need back-end services. They need someone to take care of marketing. Uh, promotion, just assistance. It's not just a matter of um, <clears throat> and listing your music and hoping people find it. So a lot of services does that with certain artists to a degree. And then there are labels <clears throat> that do those back-end services that we provide. So um, we provide in-house pitching, um, the, the ability to deliver it um, on specific dates and actually have conversations with YouTube, Spotify, Amazon, uh, you know, the endless number of uh, places you can now get music. That's great. Yeah, um, no, it's, uh, it's <clears throat> to go back to your question in the beginning, how do you do this? <laughs> it's that you find, you find this you find this love of it in the beginning because nothing's is as exciting as that moment and those moments where you build something literally from nothing mm -hmm. you know it's like being born you have an opportunity you build something from nothing some of us have more opportunities than others but um but we do have opportunities and the orchard anywhere along the line in the beginning could have gotten eaten up, um, wiped out, destroyed, just like a lot of good ideas in those early internet days. But I don't know if it was me or Scott, or we just stuck to it, you know. And also, we were lucky, which is another element of success in the music business. For sure. If you were not... If you're not lucky, you have no chance. So you have to have a talent. You have to get in the game. You have to play by the rules. Then break the rules. <laughs> and then hope you're lucky enough for the wheel to come around and knock you on the head and say, whoa, that was great. You made it now. There's a lot of good songs people don't hear. A lot of artists you forget. You know, so... As, as we did all that with the Orchard and we stayed in the game, we were there as things changed and we had the mechanism to participate in the change. And then we had the good fortune to get involved with people that enabled us to grow it. And, um, and in the end, we were lucky enough to, um, um, to survive and and the business, the digital business grew as we anticipated. And we changed as downloads went down and streaming went up, we were there. So we never turned out, turned away from anything. Whatever, as long as people were paying us and therefore the artist and the label, we would engage with them. And then we would grow with them. And I think that was important. Yeah. How has that all changed with the pandemic going on? It hasn't changed for us. 
Really? So I say, but no, because we were built as a digital remote company. True. Everything we do, we can do remotely. But has changes though is your direct relationship and involvement with being near somebody where maybe you can do a step more. Yeah. But then again, we live in a world where steps more don't matter. Steps as they are matters, like a Zoom call. Um, um, I've been on calls with uh, 30 people, you know, I mean, or 25 people. But um, I, I, we're able to continue releasing, continue marketing, continue engagements. So it, it hasn't changed that much for us. That's good. Yeah, and no, it's great. The outcomes of like the marketing and releasing been a little different because of the pandemic? Do you think? Um, maybe the physical is a bit more difficult, but right. uh, but not Other the. That. Uh, well, that's good. Not, yeah, yeah, no, it is good. It's terrible because of the pandemic. I don't I have right. no idea what's going to come out of this. I don't know what it's like in L.A., but um, New York's opening up. Yeah, LA's I don't know what that means. I don't. I don't expect we'll be back full time into. Uh, the office until 2021, but you know, I mean, and, and how's that going to change? Mm -hmm. We, we have an open office space. Right. So I was going to ask about that too. Like what changes have been made within the company yeah. and then like, how is that going to be implemented after COVID's over? I'm, I'm guessing that we'll open slowly. There'll be like schools, a smaller number of people coming. I think another number will work remotely. Um, I think that I'll be told I can voluntarily come in because of age. Um, mm -hmm. I, um, I, I just think that um, it'll be a combination. What's going to be interesting is how office life changes in general That's for true. any company, you know. Uh, and, um, and then the other side of it is, as you get young people, you're really of a mature age now, uh, Quinn. <laughs> but when you get to a six or seven-year-old, the world we're going to enter is the only world they'll know. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, That's true. So, so basically, they're not going to say, well, what happened to all those people over in the office? They won't know that that's They won't know work. any different. They will get jobs and be able to do them remotely. And um, as we expand digitally and AI and takes over, uh, we're going to find more and more that um, things are going to be vastly different. And, and the other thing I'll say about growing through the business is when I started, I started making recordings on mono machines, then two-track machines. So you have to have the instruments in the room, the singers singing. And then I learned there were four track machines with, a, with something called cell sync, where you could record on the four tracks, mix it down to two, and then bounce around on the other two. Well, that was amazing. That's how all the great Phil Spector records, the Beach Boys, and how the wonderful early Beatle records, the major Beatle records were made. Well, that was state-of-the-art. You see, people want to go back to that. But you can't go back. That was state-of-the-art then. That was like digital music today. So then it goes to 8-track, 12-track, 16-track, 24-track, 48-track, multiple machines. So, so you see, each, each trip along the way was state-of-the-art. This now is state-of-the-art. This will not be. Um, streaming will not be the beginning and end all of it. Going right. to live concerts will not be the beginning and end of it. We'll, you, you'll see engagements in other things. And we're at state of the art at the moment. I could say, wow, wasn't it wonderful when I could go to a great studio and I could move the microphones and get the sounds and create in the moment. But 
you're now creating in the moment in a different way. And, and while I could go back to that, somebody that's born in 2015 that begins making music or 2000, you know, and begins making music, this is all they know. They may go back and look at it as a historical perspective. Yeah. But you have to know the moment that you're in. But what I'll say is, just like I said to you, look up Valley. Look up CD Now. Look up Music Boulevard. Look up any number of things that were vital and rising in that moment. Because they're, they're, they're pieces of history. And the pieces of history could teach you something uh, of value in the present. And all that said, most people won't. They'll live in the present and they'll, they'll do what they do because that's the moment we're living in. It's, it's just, it, it just, the past has nothing to do with it anymore, you know? Except now we should be scared because of the 2000, the, <laughs> the 1918 pandemic that, believe it or not, as smart as I am, I never heard of <laughs> because it wasn't taught to me in school. Me neither. It yeah. wasn't taught to me in school. How much of World War II was taught to you in school? How much of World War I was taught to you in school? We're, we're out in the streets talking about, um, about um, uh, black-white relationships, but how much... Well, we know Abraham Lincoln, but how much do we know about the Civil War? How much do we know about these things? And it's because we want people to just keep living, you know. And, and as far as music goes, great creative time. It's fantastic. Me, I'd rather live in the moment where I had to twist something around in order to make a tambourine work, <laughs> not press a button and have it work. But that's me because I was there. But somebody that wasn't, nah. You know, they'll go for your electronics, it'll be great. You know, and- We, we have two quick, good now. Two quick uh, questions before we need to end. I have one and then Gwyn has one. Um, mine briefly is, you wrote all those classic songs. Did you end up down, as, as the years went on, uh, buying your publishing back? Did you, are you, you know, are you still oh, yeah. on a solid basis? Well, here you go. So um, a number of the classic songs like Sorrow, Nighttime, um, we started a publishing company, Bob, Jerry, I, Bob and Jerry Golden and I, called Grand Canyon Music. And to this day, we still talk to each other. We're still partners in it. And those songs, a lot of those songs are in Grand Canyon Music. And we administrate ourselves, and part of it's administered through Sony ATV. I won't give you the number, but, um, and this is for anybody who writes songs. Um, my boyfriend's back, and I want candy. 56 years after, we're, we're both with Sony ATV Publishing. They started off with a company called April Blackwood. Sony ATV and EMI acquired companies with a lot of the songs we have in them. Uh, among it was My Boyfriend's Back and I Want Candy. 56 years later, uh, the writer of any song has the right to reacquire those publishing rights, right? And maintain their rights and writers. Uh, we negotiated with a number of with Sony, so I have a particular uh, desire to have my material there because it's, I know it's a great company, a great place. And I negotiated the resale of those songs, the publisher's share, back to Sony ATV for what could be considered a considerable um, sum of money. And um, that opportunity is available to any writer, irregardless of the success of the song, after a certain amount of time. And um, that's a copyright law. 
Um, so in our instance, it worked out great. So everything's fine with that. Happy that the songs are still with Sony. They're because, again, advice to writers. Um, companies like that are not going anywhere. They'll always account to you honestly and fairly. And um, you'll, you'll get what you deserve. Um, also, they keep the songs in active uh, in activity so that they're available for sync and um, um, uh, film and advertising options. My Boyfriend's Back was a huge number one record, passed through all the years in films and stuff. Most of the money over the last 30 years was made as part of the Hess trucks back. Well, yeah. they make little Hess trucks. You have to be in the Northeast at the time. Now it's, now it's going to be um, across country. But used in that sink year after year after year after year. So more people know it as the Hess trucks back than my boyfriend's back. So that... That is value. And um, as a songwriter or any songwriter, so I would say if you're going to do anything in the business, if you're capable of writing songs, uh, write the songs. And if you keep the publishing yourself, fine. If not, <clears throat> engage with a publishing company or another individual that can help you with it and is... Uh, and carries it through the years with you. Because it's like an annuity. It really is. Yeah. The songs are valuable. For sure. My last question for you is uh, another mm. advice question. I was going to ask you, what advice would you give to young students who want to work in the music industry? Not necessarily songwriting, but um, <clears throat> any area yeah. of business. Well, it depends what your interest is. Right. If your interest in the business end of it, um, I would say go to a company like The Orchard or like Sony or but like but the thing the reason I say like The Orchard and I I always tell people to send me their interest in it and I put it over to HR is is that um, you want to be able to learn hands on. You want to be able to learn from people who are doing it. You get a certain amount of education at the university, at the school level, but nothing replaces the actual doing. So, so, uh, and very often getting, um, getting a diploma in that particular um, uh, area or activity from a university like you're going to or from Berkeley or from Belmont, or from NYU's programs. It's, um, it's, it's an avenue for the company you're applying to to say, well, I know this person has some sort of experience that I can maybe magnify for them. So my advice is to work, in turn, take a job in one area of the company that you might be interested in, and if they offer you one in a different area, take that because a smart company um, will observe and see that you're doing well there. And if you have an interest somewhere else, maybe you could bring that to them. So, um, so I think that's it. I think getting more, more, more experience from this side of it is important. From the creative side, there aren't that many recording studios to work in anymore. Um, how do you create? Um, well, you know, you create, you do it at home, or you do it on a computer, or find people you can work with that have similar interests and try to do it together. My successes, as much as I like to think they were mine, in every one of them, I had a partner or partners. Um, I Maybe I was smart enough to know that I was an okay songwriter, but I was a better songwriter with those other two guys. I knew something about a record company, but maybe I was better at it because I partnered with Seymour. When I moved into the future, yeah, I saw the possibilities, 
but better at it because Scott had another perspective and he could share that and together our knowledge could build something unique. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone lives in the world on their own and shared experiences and working with people um, would be my advice to anybody deciding to go into That's great. I think that's really important, especially because like a lot of people who want to go into like entrepreneurship think that they're doing it by themselves, but they don't have to. Well, they don't have to. And the truth is you some sooner or later need other people. Right. I, I was lucky enough to find uh, good people. I was lucky enough to get married to a good person. And the last thing I'll tell you, the funny thing is, um, I was married in 19, for a while, and uh, I was getting divorced in 1987. And, um, and I showed you how everything's linked. And I um, was in California making a recording, and the engineer's wife said, oh, you know my friend works for um, Shep Gordon, who managed Al Alice Cooper and stuff, and is now managing Blondie. And she's really pissed off because she keeps getting these old Blondie gold records sent to her. And she wants to get them off her desk. And she said, do you know this guy, Richard Goddard? So, oh, the engineer's wife said, yeah, you know, he's in California. He's doing this with my husband, Jeffrey, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you just bring them? We're all having dinner tonight and you get rid of them. She brings them to the restaurant. We eat good food. We drink a lot of wine and cognac. And next week, we're going to celebrate our 30th anniversary. Wow. Congrats. And it was, and it was, it was the Blondie Records. I never would have met her. That's crazy. It's the Blondie, it's the Blondie Records. I love it. So, just like the people who wanted to talk to me about Blondie, when I wanted to talk to them about independent music starting the orchard. Look what the hell you get out of this. You know, if you just get in the game, do it, enjoy yourself, have fun, and just believe in what you're doing. And the last thing I'll say, and it will be the last thing, success is in the doing of it. If you do something and you listen to that song, or you market something, or you do a report, and you like it, you succeeded. If your professor likes it, that's even better. <laughs> if people want to buy your song, that's even better. Those are the fruits of success. But the success is in the doing of it. And if you don't do it, you'll never succeed. That's a good point. That was great, Richard. Thank you so much, Richard, for appearing on our show. It was great. Yeah, thank you so uh, much. Sorry thank you for, so much for being flexible with all the what technical the difficulties that we had. Yeah, but you uh, stuck in there, and I fixed, in spite of those idiots at Verizon, I fixed it. And they didn't even respond to my call. I can't believe it. All right. All right. Okay, well, thanks a lot. And anytime, I'm happy to um, talk to students or anybody. So That would be great. great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Take thanks. care. Great thanks night. A lot. And uh, let, tell me when it runs. I'd be happy to hear I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Bye -bye. Take care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. So, Dr. Esteban, that was a tremendous interview we had with Richard, wasn't it? Very, very, very educational and entertaining. Yes, full of, full of joy. And Gwen, thank you very much for getting Richard along with us. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was great. It was a good get, a good get by you. For sure. Yes. And so this has been Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. And I am your professor, David Kirkfield, along with Dr. Stabon. Marconi. That is he. And we want to thank you for listening. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello. That would be silly. What do we say, Dr. Stabon? Alvidestein. That's right. We say adios. So at the count of three, we say one, two, three. Adios. <sighs>
Than just friends losing control of the situation. 